Father, I give you thanks for the beauty of being in this world one more day, of uh, knowing that you are the God who calls us and makes us uh, able to serve where we are. You give us the joy and delight of each uh, moment we have. And so as you give us hands and feet, minds that are sharp, make us effective for your service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 38 of James Harriet's All Creatures Great and Small. <clears throat> uh, it's St. Martin Press, 1972. I could see you like pigs, said Mr. Worley as I edged my way into the pen. You can? Oh, yes. I can always tell. As soon as you went in there nice and quiet and scratched Queenie's back and spoke to her, I said, There's a young man as likes pigs. Oh, good. Well, as a matter of fact, you're absolutely right. I do like pigs. I had, in truth, been creeping very cautiously past Queenie, wondering just how she was going to react. She was a huge animal, and sows with litters can be very hostile to strangers. When I had come into the building, she had got up from where she was suckling her piglets and eyed me with a noncommittal grunt, reminding me of the number of times I had left a pig pen a lot quicker than I had gone in. A big, barking, gaping-mouthed sow has always been able to make me move very smartly. Now that I was right inside the narrow pen, Queenie seemed to have accepted me. She grunted again, but peaceably, then carefully collapsed on the straw and exposed her udder to the eager little mouths. When she was in this position, I was able to examine her foot. Aye, that's the one, Mr. Worley said anxiously. She could hardly hobble it when she got up this morning. There didn't seem to be much wrong... A flap of the horn of one claw was a bit overgrown and was rubbing on the sensitive sole, but we didn't usually get called out for little things like that. I cut away the overgrown part and dressed the sore place with our multi-purpose ointment, Ung Pini Sedativum, while all the time Mr. Worley knelt by Queenie's head and patted her and sort of crooned into her ear. I couldn't make out the words he used, Maybe it was pig language because the sow really seemed to be answering him with soft little grunts. Anyway, it worked better than an anesthetic and everybody was happy, including the long row of piglets working busily at the double line of teats. Right, Mr. Worley, I straightened up and handed him the jar of Ung Pini. Keep rubbing in a little of that twice a day and I think she'll be sound in no time. Thank you, thank you, I'm very grateful. She shook my hand vigorously as though I had saved the animal's life. I'm very glad to meet you for the first time, Mr. Harriet. I've known Mr. Farnan for a year or two, of course, and I think a bit about him. Loves pigs, does that man. Loves them. And his young brother's been here once or twice. I reckon he's fond of pigs, too. Devoted to them, Mr. Worley. Ah, yes, I thought so. I can always tell. He regarded me for a while with moist eye, then smiled, well satisfied. We went out into what was really the backyard of an inn. Because Mr. Worley wasn't a regular farmer, he was the landlord of the Langthorpe Falls Hotel, and his precious livestock were crammed into what had once been the stables and coach houses of the inn. They were all Tamworths, and whichever door you opened, you found yourself staring into the eyes of ginger-haired pigs. There were a few porkers, and the odd one being fattened for bacon, but Mr. Worley's prize was his sows. He had six of them. Queenie, Princess, Ruby, Marigold, Delilah, and Primrose. For years, expert farmers had been assuring Mr. Worley that he'd never do any good with his sows. If you were going in for breeding, they said, you had to have proper premises. It wasn't a bit of use shoving sows into converted buildings like his. 
And for years, Mr. Swarley's sows had responded by producing litters of unprecedented size and raising them with tender care. They were all good mothers and didn't savage their families or crush them clumsily under their bodies. So in turn, so it turned out with uncanny regularity that at the end of eight weeks, Mr. Worley had about 12 chunky wieners to take to market. It must have spoiled the farmer's beer. None of them could equal that. And the pill was all the more bitter because the landlord had come from the industrial West Riding, Halifax, I think it was, a frail, short-sighted little retired newsagent with no agricultural background. By all the laws, he just didn't have a chance. Leaving the yard, we came on to the quiet loop of road where my car was parked. Just beyond, the road dipped steeply into a tree-lined ravine where the Darrow hurled itself over a great broken shelf of rock in its passage to the lower dale. I couldn't see down there from where I was standing, but I could hear the faint roar of the watcher and could picture the black cliff lifting sheer from the boiling river and on the other bank, the gentle slope of turf where people from the towns came to sit and look in wonder. Some of them were here now. A big, shiny car had drawn up and its impressive, I'm sorry, and its occupants were disembarking. The driver, sleek, fat, and impressive, strolled towards us and called out, We would like some tea. Mr. Worley swung round on him. And you can ask some, mister, but when I'm ready, I have some very important business with this gentleman. He turned back, on, turned his back on the man and began to ask me for final instructions about Queenie's foot. The man was obviously taken aback, and I couldn't blame him. It seemed to me that Mr. Worley might have shown a little more tact. After all, serving food and drink was his living. But as I came to know him better, I realized that his, first, his pigs came first and everything else was an irritating intrusion. Knowing Mr. Worley better had its rewards. The time when I feel most like a glass of beer is not in the evening when the pubs are open, but at around 4.30 on a hot afternoon after wrestling with young cattle in some stifling cowshed. It was delightful to retire, sweating and weary, to the shaded sanctuary of Mr. Worley's back kitchen and sip at the bitter ale, cool, frothing, straight from the cellar below. The smooth working of the system was facilitated by the attitude of the local constable, P.C. Dalloway, a man whose benign disposition and elastic interpretation of the licensing laws had made him deeply respected in the district. Occasionally, he joined us, took off his uniform, jacket, and in shirt and braces, consumed a pint with a massive dignity which was peculiar to him. But mostly Mr. Worley and I were on our own, and when he had brought the tall jug up from the cellar, he would sit down and say, Well now, let's have a piggy talk. His use of this particular phrase made me wonder if perhaps he had some humorous insight into his obsessive preoccupation with the porcine species. Maybe he had, but for all that our conversation seemed to give him the deepest pleasure. He talked about erispelis and swine fever, brine poisoning and paratyphoid, the relative merits of dry and wet mash, whole pictures of his peerless sows with their row show rosettes looked down at us from the walls. Uh, on one occasion, in the middle of a particularly profound discussion on the ventilation of farrowing houses, Mr. Worley stopped suddenly and, blinking rapidly behind his thick spectacles, burst out, You know, Mr. Herring, sitting here talking like this with you, I'm happy as a king of England. His devotion resulted in my being called out frequently for very trivial things, and I swore freely under my breath when I heard his voice on the other end of the line at one o'clock one morning. Marigold pig this morning, Mr. Hedit, and I don't think she's got much milk. Little pigs look very hungry to me. Will you come? I groaned my way out of bed and downstairs and through the long garden to the yard. 
By the time I had got the car out into the lane, I had begun to wake up, and when I rolled up to the inn, was greeted by Mr. Worley fairly cheerfully. But the poor man did not respond. In the light from the oil lamp, his face was haggard with worry. I hope you could do something quick. I'm real upset about her. She's just laid there doing nothing and is such a lovely litter. Fourteen she's had. I could understand his concern as I looked into the pen. Mary Gold was stretched motionless on her side while the tiny piglets swarmed around her udder. They were rushing from teat to teat, squealing and falling over each other in a desperate quest for nourishment. And the little bodies had the narrow, empty look which meant they had nothing in their stomachs. I hated to see a litter die off from sheer starvation, but it could happen so easily. There came a time when they stopped trying to suck and began to lie about the pen. After that, it was hopeless. Crouching behind the sow with my thermometer in her rectum, I looked along the swelling flank, the hair a rich copper red in the light from the lamp. Did she eat anything tonight? I cleaned up just as usual. The thermometer reading was normal. I began to run my hand along the udder. Pulling in turn at the teats, the ravenous piglets caught at my fingers with their sharp teeth as I pushed them to one side, but my efforts failed to produce a drop of milk. The udder seemed full, even engorged, but I was unable to get even a bead down to the end of the teat. There's not that there is there. There's not there, is there, Mr. Worley whispered anxiously. I straightened up and turned to him. This is simply agalactia. There's no mastitis, and Marigold isn't really ill, but there's something interfering with the letdown mechanism of the milk. She's got plenty of milk, and there's an injection which ought to bring it down. I tried to keep the triumphant look off my face as I spoke, because this was one of my favorite party tricks. There is a flavor of magic in the injection of pituitrin in these cases. It works within a minute, and though no skill is required, the effect is spectacular. Marigold didn't complain as I plunged in the needle and administered 3cc deep into the muscle of her thigh. She was too too busy conversing with her owner. They were almost nose-to-nose, exchanging soft pig noises. After I'd put away my syringe and listened for a few moments to the cooing sounds from the front end, I thought it might be time. Mr. Worley looked up in surprise as I reached down again to the udder. What are you doing now? How do you feel to see if the milk's come down yet? Why, it can't be. You've only just given it to stuff and she's bone dry. Oh, this was going to be good. A roll of drums would be appropriate at this moment. With finger and thumb, I took hold of one of the teats of that turgid end of the back, uh, back end of the udder. I suppose it's a streak of exhibitionism, exhibitionism in me which always makes me send a jet of milk spraying against the opposite wall in these circumstances. This time, I thought it would be more impressive if I directed my shot past the innkeeper's left ear. But I got my trajectory wrong and sprinkled his spectacles instead. He took them off and wiped them slowly as if he couldn't believe what he had seen. Then he bent over and tried for himself. It's a miracle, he cried as the milk spouted eagerly over his hand. I've never seen aught like it. It didn't take the little pigs long to catch on. Within a few seconds, they had stopped their fighting and squealing and settled down in a long, silent row. Their utterly rapt expressions all told the same story. They were going to make up for lost time. I went into the kitchen to wash my hands and was using the towel hanging behind the door when I noticed something odd. There was a subdued hum of conversation the low rumble of many voices. It seemed unusual in a pub at 2 a.m., and I looked through the partly open door into the bar. The place was crowded. In the light of a single weak electric bulb, I could see a row of men drinking at the counter while others sat behind him foaming pine pots on the wooden settles against the walls. Mr. Worley grinned as I turned to him in surprise. Didn't expect to see this lot, did you? Well, I'll tell you, the real drinkers don't come in till after closing time. Aye, it's a rummin'. 
Every night I lock the front door and these lads come in the back. I push my head around the door for another look. It was a kind of rogues gallery of Derby. All the dubious characters in town seemed to be gathered in that room. Their names which regularly enliven the columns of the weekly newspaper with their activities. Drunk and disorderly, non-payment of rates, wife beating, assault battery. I could see almost see the headings as I went from face to face. I had been spotted. Beery cries of welcome rang out, and I was suddenly conscious that all eyes were fixed on me in the smoky atmosphere. Above the rest, a voice said, Are you going to have a drink? What I wanted most was to get back to my bed. But it wouldn't look so good just to close the door and go. I went inside and over to the bar. I seemed to have plenty of friends there, and within seconds I was in the center of a merry group with a pint glass in my hand. My nearest neighbor was a well-known Darrowby worthy called Gobber Newhouse an enormously fat, enormously fat man who had always seemed able to get through life without working at all. He occupied his time with drinking, brawling, and gambling. At the moment, he was in a mellow mood, and his huge sweating, sweaty, sweating face, pushed close to mine, was twisted into a camaraderie leer. Nah, then, idiot, how's dog trade? he inquired courteously. I had never heard my profession described in this way and was wondering how to answer when I noticed that the company were looking to, at me expectantly. Mr. Worley's niece, who served behind the bar, was looking at me expectantly too. Six pints of best bitter, six shillings, please, she said, clarifying the situation. I fumbled the money from my pocket. Obviously, my first impression that somebody had invited me to have a drink with them had been mistaken. Looking around the faces, there was no way of telling who had called out. And as the di beer disappeared, the group around the bar thinned out like magic. The members just drifted away as though by accident till I found myself alone. I was no longer an object of interest, and nobody paid any attention as I drained my glass and left. The glow from the pig pen showed through the darkness of the yard, and as I crossed over, the soft rumble of pig and human voices told me that Mr. Worley was still talking things over with him, over with his sow. He looked up as I came in, and his face in the dim light was ecstatic. Mr. Harriet, he whispered, isn't that a beautiful sight? He pointed to the little pigs who were lying motionless in a layered heap, sprawled over each other without plan or pattern, eyes tightly closed, stomachs bloated with marigold's bountiful fluid. It is indeed, I said, prodding the sleepy mass with my finger, but getting no response beyond the lazy opening of an eye. You'd have to go a long way to beat it. And I did share his pleasure. It was one of the satisfying little jobs. Climbing into the car, I felt that the nocturnal visit had been worth, had been worthwhile, even though I had been effortlessly duped into buying a round with no hope of reciprocation. Not that I wanted to drink anymore. My stomach wasn't used to receiving pints of ale at 2 a.m., and a few whimpers of surprise and indignation were already coming up. But I was just a bit ruffled by the offhand, professional way those gentlemen in the tap room had handled me. But, winding my way home through the empty, moonlit roads, I was unaware that the hand of retribution was hover hovering over that happy land. This was, in fact, a fateful night, because ten minutes after I had left, Mr. Worley's pub was raided. Perhaps that is a rather dramatic word, but it happened that it was the constable's annual holiday, and the relief man, a young policeman who did not share Mr. Dalloway's liberal views, had come up on his bicycle and pinched everybody in the place. The account of the court proceedings in the Darrowby and Holton Times made good reading. Gobber Newhouse and company were all fined two pounds each and warned as to their future conduct. The magistrates, obviously a heartless lot, 
had remained unmoved by Gobber's passionate protestations that the beer and the glasses had all been purchased before closing time and that he and his friends had been lingering over it in light conversation for the subsequent four hours. Mr. Worley was fined 15 pounds, but I don't think he really minded. Marigold and her litter were doing well. I love you all. Have a great rest of your day.